Good morning, Compass. I was looking on my phone at our teaching schedule, and I realized that as of the beginning of this month, we have been in the book of Mark for an entire year, minus um, when we went through the Christmas season and then our mission statement. So if you are just joining today or you're a guest, um, you're jumping in at the end of the story. So um, we've, we are at Mark 14, right where Judas is betraying Jesus. So pick it up in verse 43. Just as he, Jesus, was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. So we'll do a few things. First, we'll look at some facts just about um, what's going on in the text to give us some context and then some observations and then how it applies to us. So one thing right out of the gate that we notice is that Judas is identified as one of the 12. Judas, one of the 12, appeared. He also, each time he's mentioned in Mark's biography of Jesus, it's always, Mark makes a point to always mention that he's the betrayer or the one that handed him over. And it's always been a little bit strange. I don't know about you. Um, Michelle and I were talking about this earlier, especially if you grew up in church. You hear this story over and over and over. And by the time you are old enough to really recognize the betrayal of it and the the horror of it, you're almost desensitized to it because you've already heard it when you didn't know what it meant. And I think in some ways that's that's how I view the story. I don't realize like kind of the, it's a betrayal, yes, but the deep personal betrayal. Why, Why was it a kiss? First of all, why'd they have to identify? Like, imagine now you're trying to kill someone over, like, a three-year period of time, and you don't even know what he looks like. Like, That just seemed really strange to me. But the men that were arresting Jesus probably were just the servants or the the soldiers of the people wanting to kill Jesus, so they weren't exactly sure what he looked like. And why a kiss? Well, Judas, or any follower of a rabbi at that time, you you would take on what the rabbi did. You do what whatever he did, you'd follow in his footsteps. And so um, one of the greetings to a rabbi or to someone you really cared about traditionally was a kiss, and it's meant to show all of the affection. It's meant to show a deep and close relationship. So the personal part of that betrayal with Judas and Jesus is that he was using a sign of connection, a sign of following to betray somebody who he really cared about. And in the book of Mark, um, Mark doesn't mention Judas again. 
he, he's done. Once Judas is betrayed, he's, he's fulfilled his role in the story. Mark doesn't even tell us what happens to Judas. He completely disappears. Um, another kind of interesting point here is, uh, what, what's with the naked guy, you know? Like, Mark is pretty, like, short and sweet, and he doesn't, he doesn't put anything in there that, that seems irrelevant to the story, so what's, with, what's the point of this guy, you know? Um, a lot of people suspect that potentially that is John Mark, the author of our biography. Um, and some think, I think we talked about this way back a year ago when we started our series, some think that actually the house where the Last Supper was was John Mark's house. And when you go to Israel, you can go to John Mark's mother's house, in theory, or where it was. And um, probably John Mark had just met Jesus within that week. And they think that this is his way of putting himself into the story. So he literally, John Mark potentially meets Jesus right before he's crucified and then probably 30, 40 years later sits down and pens this gospel story. So that, again, is all just kind of ideas of scholars, but I personally think that'd be kind of cool if it was John Mark who, who fled with the, the garment. But it's kind of a full circle way of, here we've been reading John Mark's um, words that he learned from Peter and Paul about Jesus' life, and this is potentially the only place that he's mentioned in the entire book. But um, although Mark does not mention what happens to Judas, a couple of other places in the Bible do. So in Matthew 27, Matthew tells us, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. So somewhere in there we get the hint. Maybe it went different than Judas thought. Maybe it really was a kiss of loyalty and he was thinking, oh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna start the rebellion early. Jesus, like Jesus has escaped so many times, maybe I'm just gonna betray him and then he'll throw off the guards and, and the rebellion will begin. And when he saw that Jesus was actually um, going to die, he was devastated. Who knows? We don't, we don't know Judas's heart. But the chief priests and the rulers have no empathy for him, and they say, what is that to us? It's your responsibility. You're the one that betrayed him. Why, why do we care? So Judas threw the money into the temple and left and went away and hanged himself. We see again in the book of Acts, Peter, he's um, coming out of the gate, that first sermon where, you know, two or 3,000 people come to Jesus and he says, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field and there fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. So we have a couple of different stories. Maybe they can all go together. Maybe they're different rumors, but it seems unanimous that Judas was remorseful and that he died. What an end to a life. We see all through Jesus' ministry this running theme of invitation. 
Come, follow me, be my disciple, or better put, be my apprentice. Practice the things that I teach. Learn to do the things that I do. And who did he invite to do this? People who were around him. Fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors, Romans, Jews, mixed race, Pharisees kicked out of the synagogue because of skin diseases, the overly legalistic ones, the possessed, the rich, the poor, men, women. We know this, the kingdom of heaven was and is open to all. And I think sometimes we like to think, at least with Judas, we think, well, he let Judas stay in the group because he knew that he needed to be betrayed and he had to turn him over to the Jewish leaders. And we kind of dismiss Jesus' radical acceptance the vulnerability it would have taken to include someone in your closest circle who you knew would betray you. The grace it took to accept Judas where he was, knowing what Judas would become. Instead, we kind of frame it as this necessary step to fulfill the prophecy and save humanity. But when we look closer, we notice that all the biographies of Jesus have him constantly extending to invitations and spending time with all kinds of people with duplicitous hearts. Nicodemus, this Pharisee by day and by night, he's coming to Jesus, what does this mean? How do I have a new life? We have Simon the leper, this religious leader who's healed by Jesus and still just not quite sure if he's the Messiah that he wants to follow. Even Peter and the other wholehearted followers had this vision of the kingdom of God and what Jesus would do, and it was turned around, and when it went different than they thought, they just ran. And as we just read, everybody left Jesus in that moment. Even his closest followers, one betrayed him, the rest of them left him. We know the crowds that were cheering for him earlier in the week will turn around and be jeering and begging for his death. How must Jesus have felt in that moment as a fully human being? And we have Judas, one of the 12, keeper of the money, follower on the outside with betrayal in his heart. Jesus does not seem to care. I'm sure he cared, but does not seem to discriminate against people depending where they are in the journey. During his ministry, Jesus told another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seed among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, Then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? When did these weeds come up? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go out and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Over and over and over, we see Jesus taking his own advice, letting both the wheat and the weeds grow together, the Judases and the Peters, the Simons, 
and the Nicodemuses, the Marys and the women that were going to be stoned. And Judas was just no exception. We could get caught up in the story thinking that the story is about Judas, but really it's about Jesus. So how do we be like Jesus in this way? How do we embody radical acceptance and unwavering conviction? Firstly, I think we extend the invitation. So your coworkers, your classmates, your family members, your friends, your role is to be like Jesus. Extending the invitation of apprenticeship to them in every way. And the best way to do that is to follow Jesus yourself and become more like him. To spend time in prayer, in the scriptures, in silence. I believe that in doing that, your life will be different and the people around you will notice. People all through the Bible were different after getting into the presence of Jesus. I think that truth still stands. Uh, last week, um, it was already going to be a busy next couple of weeks, and then um, more things piled onto the schedule. And have you ever just like had so much on your list, you're like laying in bed, and you know there's like 15 things you should be doing, but your heart rate's just going, and you're just laying there <laughs> trying to figure out where you're going to start on the list. So that was me, and I was sitting here thinking, man, I really don't want to be stressed out and cranky, and tired, and impatient for the next two or three weeks. That's just not the person I want to be. I've been trying to slow down. I've been trying not to hurry. And all these things are on my schedule, and what am I going to do? I don't want to be that person. And so I tend to be someone that really likes to try and solve it myself, and then be like, hey, God, I'm not, it's not working. Can you help me? <laughs> and so this time I was like, I'm going to get ahead of it. And so I started to talk to God about it. And just say, look, I, I really, I know this is overpacked, but please, please help me be like you. Give me your patience, give me your peace. And you know what was amazing is that week, um, how I should have been was like, you know how when you're really stressed and you can see someone else's stress, like the last thing you want to do is ask them how they're doing? Because then they're going to tell you and your heart rate is just going to I can't even hear you, stop, you know? And so I'm like, that's how it should have been, right? I should have just been not paying very much attention at work. And you know what was so crazy and had to just be the Holy Spirit is that that week at work, I learned more of my coworkers' stories than I've probably learned in the entire year before. Um, one, just one example. Uh, one of my friends, her mom was coming to visit from the Philippines, had never seen her home in Arkansas. And once she got here, she's, she's like 89, she started getting pretty sick. And she uh, developed an infection, and she fell, and just, you know, exactly what you don't want to happen when your mom comes to visit. And so they didn't have any of the supplies. A lot of you have been taking care of aging parents, and, um, you know, like, it's very costly and very time-consuming very quickly. And um, I asked her how it was going with her mom. She seemed upset. And the story spilled out, they didn't have a wheelchair. And so that night, we were able to uh, let them borrow Compass's wheelchair. And that just made their day. She was sobbing on the phone, talking about how grateful she was that, for that support. And I think that's how we extend the invitation. And it was certainly not me, because me should have not even asked her how she was, because I was stressed out, right? So I think the Holy Spirit moves in us when we spend time with God and allows us to extend an invitation and interact with the people around us in a different way. And number two, we are not the people sorters. 
that's human, right? Like the way our brains work, we categorize things. That's how you know that like that padded larger chair is also a chair and the folding chair is also a chair and the chair you're sitting in is also a chair. They're all very different, but your brain has categorized to know that a chair is a chair. That's how our brains work. And our brains would love to extend that to people as well. <laughs> and I think when it comes to people, we're not meant to be that way. We're not wanting to be that way at Compass as a leadership team. And the same for you. We all have those coworkers, those friends, those family members that we can just categorize like they drive me nuts, they, their values are different. Um, we have no interest and inviting them, right? Like, we don't think this consciously, but it's like, I, I don't like seeing you for five minutes, so why would I wanna live with you forever? <laughs> we don't fully think it out, but that's how we act sometimes, because we're, we're frustrated, it's difficult. Dallas Willard puts this really well, even the tares, he's referring to the parable in Matthew about the, the weeds and the wheat, he said, even tares, real or apparent, are to be loved and served and called to apprenticeship to Jesus. The Lord is the only purifier of groups and he has his own schedule for it. Extend the invitation and let Jesus sort it out. We're not the people sorters. And the last thing that I, observation I had from this text is just tell the truth. Last week we had Jesus sitting at the table at the Last Supper and it said, while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Jesus, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Who is eating with me? Notice that Jesus' stance of compassion, of vulnerability, of grace did not change toward Judas even as he told the truth about what, Jesus was, or about what Judas was about to do. Jesus never softened his stories or his invitation to follow to make people feel more comfortable. He radically accepted even as he told the truth. It's almost like we could divide Christian evangelism into these two really stereotypical groups. And the first group is like, bang the person over the head with the Bible, tell them about all this morality, and if it doesn't work, just stay away from them because we don't want their habits to rub off on us, right? Like if you see someone um, if you're hanging out with someone who doesn't recycle, then you're like, oh my goodness, I, I, people might think I don't recycle either, or I might even stop recycling, I just need to stay away from them. And that's kind of our example of, okay, this, that's kind of one camp of evangelism. And in the second group, we want people to feel welcome and accepted, so let's soften everything down. Let's be super tolerant, let's avoid uncomfortable topics, and let's stick to the socially acceptable and culturally relevant teachings like women's rights and love, which Jesus was for both, by the way. But the problem is with both of these groups is that we don't see Jesus doing exclusively either one. We see Jesus firstly caring about the state of people's hearts over their morality. And as he cares, he is among them, eating in the homes of tax collectors, of prostitutes, the religious elite, the educated, and the wealthy. His spending, his spending time with them is not conditional to their morality or their beliefs. And yet, his teaching remains honest. His portrayal of the kingdom of God is startling. His Sermon on the Mount, which we're about to do a series on this summer, is stunning and impossible. 
You thought the Ten Commandments were hard. You haven't even read the Sermon on the Mount. His expectations around lust and adultery, anger, prayer, fasting are just mind-blowing. His stories about who will be in the kingdom of God challenge all social and cultural norms and frankly are offensive to just about every group of people he was speaking to. He doesn't chase Judas out of the group, but challenges Judas's ideas and finally predicts Judas's betrayal, but not in a condemning or shaming way. He was telling the truth. In Dallas Willard's book, Renovation of the Heart, he describes um, followers of Jesus as their hearts are changed, and he describes how they are in social settings. He said, they do not conceal their thoughts and feelings, nor do they impose them upon everyone. Because of their confidence in God, they do not try to manipulate or manage others. Moreover, they are completely non-condemning, while at the same time, they will not participate in evil. They pay it only the attention absolutely required in a social setting, and beyond that, patient and joyful non-participation is the rule. They know how to really be there, wherever there is, without sharing in evil, as was true of Jesus himself. Jesus walked a tightrope of compassion, casting this refreshing and startling vision of what the kingdom of God is like, inviting all to be a part of it. Starting their transformation in the moment and telling of this beautiful future in the kingdom where all will be as good as he describes all the while accepting people in the mess, wading into the cognitive dissonance and messy lives of the people who were around him, totally unaffected by their apparent mishaps, mistakes, and catastrophes. As we read Judas's story, the story is more about Jesus than it is about Judas. The way Jesus responded to Judas has implications for how we aim to be as apprentices of Jesus, a people who extend the invitation to follow Jesus by the way we live, the way we talk, the things we do, who we are as people of God, a people free from the need to sort the people around us into groups because we're cultivating this unequivocal trust in Jesus that he will be the one to sort it out in the end. And like Jesus, we are brave and vulnerable and we live into our identity as his followers without toning it down. We have big faith when skepticism is the trend. We remain true to belief when everyone around us is casting it aside. Aiming to be a people of both radical conviction and radical acceptance, just like our King. Jesus, we are so grateful to you that you accept us right where we are. In our mess, in our unbelief, in our questions, and in our doubts, we praise you that you're totally unintimidated by that. We thank you that that has no effect on how hard you pursue us and how deeply you love us. Teach us to rest in that truth this week, today, and every day. Teach us to rest in the love and the grace that you have. Teach us to be like you. Thank you for 
all that you've done for us. Thank you for being willing to experience that betrayal of everyone that you ever knew as a human, leaving you at your darkest moment. Thank you for doing that for us. We praise you for that, and um, we ask that we would respond accordingly. In your name, amen.